Hi, I'm Eddie Santiago, the host of National Board Conversations, and on this episode, we talk to Michael De La Torre. He's a National Board Certified Teacher in Los Angeles, and he's also the Program Coordinator for the LAUSD National Board Support Network. On this episode, we get into why Michael became a teacher and offers some tips for your National Board journey. So without further ado, let's welcome in Michael. Hey, Michael, how's it going today? Hey, Eddie, good. How are you doing? Uh, Pretty well, pretty well. Excited to be here, you know. First voyage on this podcast journey with the National Board for myself. So, you know, I'm excited to excited to talk to you. Oh, great. Great. I'm excited, too. Uh, so we'll start off right off the top. Can you give a little bit of an introduction of yourself? Uh, what's your current role and what do you do? Sure. My name is Michael De La Torre. I'm the coordinator for the Support Network. That's a collaboration between LAUSD and UTLA, my district and my union. And uh, I help teachers get board certified. Can you share why you became a teacher? What got you into the profession in the first place? Yeah, so when I was in college, uh, I did get a recruiter that called me. And uh, at the time, it was in the, it was in 91. So it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm old. <laughs> and uh, they needed bilingual teachers. And since I'm bilingual, they recruited me. And so I came down to L.A. and started teaching. That's how I got started teaching. Nice. So where'd you move? Where'd you come down from? Where'd you go down to L.A. from? Oh, nice. So you was up in NorCal. So why did you end up becoming a board certified teacher? Well, it wasn't available then. So, you know, as you know, um, in my district, we didn't know about it until um, my district negotiated this position and this organization with the union um, in 1997 or 96, which is about 10 years after National Board began. That started in 86. Um, so at that time, when I heard about it, I thought, hey, I want to do this because our district offered a substantial uh, pay increase for board certified teachers. And I thought, oh, I can do it. You know, I was a hotshot teacher and thinking that this is, this is next on my list. Let me get it another feather in my cap. So I pursued it. But actually, I tried to pursue, but there was no certification for bilingual teachers at that time. So I had to wait until 2000 when they first offered the English as a new language certificate. And that's when I actually pursued. Uh, how long did it take you to finish the process? Well, I went through the first year and missed it by three points. And everyone else in my cohort did succeed. And so I had a retake. But in my retake, I did pass. So it took me two years. Um, and uh, there are some things that I wish I had known when I pursued that would have helped me to achieve in the first year. But it's all good. It's not a race. What were some of your initial thoughts uh, when you started the process and you decided to take that leap and become a National Board Certified Teacher? Oh, when I first, uh, my initial thoughts were, what if I don't pass? You know, there was the panic. It's a high stakes assessment. Um, and I was nervous because at that time we didn't even have, the, we didn't have the questions available. You just had to pay and then wait until you received a, a mysterious box in the mail. And this box had a, a, a CD-ROM with all the questions so it was very, you know, secretive, you know, and scary. Um, but I was worried, worried that I, what if I didn't pass? It was expensive. You know, back then it cost more than it does now. Um, so on a teacher's salary, that's quite a bit. It was like 2,500. And so, you know, back in the 90s, you can imagine, it's a lot of money, <laughs> 99, 2000. So, uh, but yeah, it was just a little nervous. Because I didn't know if I, I had enough to, to make the grade. So, uh, What are some things you wish you had known prior to um, pursuing board certification? Oh, I wish I had known that it's, it's completely based on what you do with students. 
and not at all on, on programs or state standards. Um, it really is just focused on the teacher and your response to students' needs. What did you learn along the way? Mm, I learned to collaborate with colleagues, believe it or not. So, you know, usually teaching is a, is a private profession where you everyone works in their own classroom. So you're not used to working with others. But when I did the process in, and I joined this program that I'm the coordinator now, and it was with a group of other teachers, but I didn't know how to play in the sandbox, you know, so I didn't know how to collaborate with other teachers to get work done. And as I went through, um, I learned how to share my expertise with others and also learn from their expertise because everyone's good at something and all of us together are better. No, I can imagine. And now in COVID, I feel like it's harder, harder to collaborate uh, with a lot of online schooling and, you know, a lot of kids at home or in hybrid teaching. But having those skills to, to know how to collaborate with one another, you know, is super helpful. Actually, I find it's easier to collaborate now with COVID. Um, when the pandemic struck and we had to move to online program, so I had a hybrid model. I had some face to, mostly face-to-face -face, uh, workshops and then some online in Canvas. And once the pandemic struck, I moved all of my candidates into the Canvas course, which is virtual. And it actually allowed for more collaboration through the use of like Google Suite with Google Docs. And so teachers were able to get together in Zoom and then share a document on screen and everyone participate. So it made it virtual is actually easier to collaborate with colleagues than face-to-face, -face, I think. So you currently lead the National Board Support, Pro Support Program for LAUSD. Um, are there any particular tips or strategies you share with teachers and counselors you work with? I... Yeah, lots of tips. So I tell them to work on it a little bit every day, you know, just do a little bit at a time. It's just too much to tackle all at once. You know, it's not like a, it's not like a college paper you can leave till the night before and crank it out. It's nothing like that. So you really have to work on it a little bit at a time and make lots of revisions. So answer the questions, share it with colleagues, get their input and their feedback, and then revise your work. So the more you revise it, the clearer that vision will be. And that makes for a better uh, component submission. Is there a common misstep you could see that candidates take? Yes. So a lot of candidates um, are so nervous, understandably, because I was nervous too when I was a candidate, that you forget that you just have to answer the questions. So the questions in the co and the components are designed to elicit specific responses. So if you just answer the question, um, you'll more than likely get the evidence you need. Um, and the other thing is to make sure that what your response, that it's relevant to um, whatever facet you're focusing on. So in the National Board, I learned about lenses. There's a different lens that you can view every project. And so you have to view it through the National Board lens, and that makes it a lot easier. What advice do you have for educators planning their journey now? What advice would you give them going forward? In terms of pursuing national board? Yeah, in terms of pursuing national board now, what advice would you give uh, current candidates? Uh, I would advise them to start early, so don't wait until the last minute. I know the deadline to sign up for the national boards in, in late February, but that's really too late to start the program. You have to start the process early in the year. So um, I usually have orientations in the spring for the following school year. So definitely start early, read your standards document, read the component instructions for your certificate area, and just think about it because you have to let it sink in so you understand everything uh, and take your time. So don't rush through it. 
and really take your time and just answer the questions and collaborate with others so they can read your work and give you feedback. Well, you keep talking about how much work it is and how it can be a lot and to do a little bit every day. And so it sounds like it can get very overwhelming. What are some tips you do you have that to keep educators who seem to get overwhelmed by the process? And Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is, it's a very rigorous process. So it is overwhelming if you try to do it all at once. But if you do it in manageable chunks, you know, a little bit at a time, it's not so daunting. Um, so what I do is in my network, I do give them little mini assignments or mini deadlines of when they should complete certain parts. So if you work, at, work on it just a little bit at a time, um, it's not as uh, daunting. So we're going to take this outside the classroom a little bit so we can get uh, to know you a little bit more. Uh, we're going to start with uh, what kind of music were you listening to on your last playlist? <laughs> so I'm a big Britney Spears fan. Oh, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, so I know you wouldn't think it, but I just I love Britney Spears, uh, mainly because I do love her music, but I think she's a great role model for students to see that even though she doesn't have the greatest talent like some other singers, she is still very successful because she's driven and she does what she loves. So I remember in one of her interviews, she said that she knows that she doesn't have the greatest voice like say Christina Aguilera, but she likes the way that singing makes her feel. And so she's doing what she loves and doing what she loves, she's become so successful. And so that's inspirational for students because you might think, well, I'm not the best basketball player in the world, but as long as you love doing something, just go ahead and do it. You can still be successful. That's awesome. So uh, what is your favorite kind of food? So I'm a big eater. I like all kinds of foods, um, but I would say my favorite, it would have to be like Cajun food. I like it. My sister's from New Orleans and that's what I love when I go down there and get some good Cajun food. <laughs> we just had some, yeah, I love New Orleans too. It's so, so delicious. We just had some Cajun food yesterday. So it's, it's, I love it. I love the spice. Exactly. I got used to it. Like my one, some, I know somebody from Houston and, uh, like I got introduced to it down there and it's been in my life because I grew up in the Northeast and it's not very spicy up there. And I go down there and get introduced to spicy food and it was great. Uh, so what hobbies outside of education do you have? Oh, my hobbies. Um, I've been a volunteer docent at the LA Zoo since 1997. And so I, I was doing the animal show there and giving tours to zoo guests. Um, but now with the pandemic, we can't have hands-on, so no more animal shows. Well, any good animal fun facts for us? I'm sorry? <laughs> any good fun facts about animals for us? Can you give us one? <laughs> uh, fun facts? Well, most, I do have fun facts. And usually I talk about what animal we have, you know, that I'm presenting or an animal at an exhibit. Um, but one thing that we talk about mostly is conservation efforts. Mm -hmm. And so LA Zoo, I'm really proud of the fact that we partner with um, all other zoos and aquariums to ensure that we conserve the species. And the California condor is uh, one of our big success stories because the California condor in 1986, there were only like 22 left in the world and they were going to be extinct. So the LA Zoo partnered with San Diego Zoo and we brought the remaining condors that were out in the wild into captivity. And we started a captive breeding program. And uh, thankfully we were able to success successfully breed these condors. Uh, the reason they were dying out is that we were using lead um, in the munitions. And the lead, when the condors would eat the carcasses, they would consume the lead, which would weaken their eggs, and they couldn't uh, sit on them to, to incubate them. So 
yeah, now there there's over 400 in the wild here in California, and they're doing well. Wow, well, what an amazing way to end, end this out. I appreciate your time, Michael. Thanks so much, Eddie. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. That was Michael De La Torre. Such a meaningful conversation. We would like to thank him for his time and thank you for listening to National Board Conversations. Be sure to follow the National Board on all our social media platforms to keep up with any updates National Board related. And we'll see you next time.